Coming up next on the Wetfly Swing Podcast. Take a casting lesson. Stop buying new rods. Take a casting lesson. Learn how to cast a fly rod. Stop your back cast abruptly. Accelerate smoothly. This is where your double hull is supposed to go. At the end, not the start. And you talk about you know, your hands coming together and then separating on your hull for maximum leverage. Like there's very simple things that can take a beginner caster to an advanced caster in a year's time if he practices. And then he has the rest of his life as an advanced caster to chase fish. That was Gunnar Bramer with a solid reminder about practice. One of our most listened to episodes from the vault today on the swing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how's it going today? Thanks for stopping by the show. Do you know how we've grown this show over the last five years consistently? It's been one share at a time from listeners just like you. If you get a chance and you've been liking this show, now's your chance you can share an episode out that you've listened to in the past. Uh, if it's this one, go ahead and just click that uh, share button down in your app and share it out. And I want to thank you in advance. Today's episode is sponsored by Country Financial, who thrives on helping families and community members through the power of education and proper insurance coverage. I connected with Dalton uh, this last year and made a good connection with him. He loves the outdoors and loves serving the outdoor community. The unexpected will happen, so it's always to have the right person on the job that knows your stuff. Head over to wetflyswing.com slash country right now. C-O-U-N-T-R-Y. Country Financial. Check it out right now. We're also sponsored by Angler's Coffee, roasting a full range of coffee with one goal in mind, delivering excellent coffee to every single angler. That's you, a blend for every taste, dry dropper on the go teabag option. Uh, Joe has it covered. He's got some good stuff. I love anglers, and I know you will too. You can head over right now, wetflyswing.com slash anglers, A-N-G-L-E-R-S, to support this podcast in a sustainable company with unsurpassed taste. Today I'm on vacation, so we're re-releasing one of our most listened to episodes of all time. Gunnar Bramer goes deep on streamers today. We hear a bunch of his good history. Gunnar brings us the passion in this one as he tells a story of meeting and being mentored by Kelly Gallup. We find out what he's uh, tying now for bass and just a bunch of passion-filled stories uh, that he's had along the way. So it's a, it's good to release this one while I'm out uh, on the river. Hope you enjoy it today. And uh, if you didn't catch this one uh, when we previously released it a few years ago, uh, give me a shout out and let me know. Um, these little re-releases are okay for you. All right, we're going to dig into a bunch of topics today, including the triple sculpt daddy. So without further ado, here we go. Gunner Bramer from streamersbygunner.com. How's it going, Gunner? It's going well, man. How are you? Good, good. Great to have you on here. I, I'm kind of uh, continuing my journey. Uh, we, we were chatting a little bit off there about some of the some of your background, just on the, you know, what you have going. So we'll, we'll dig into some of that. And I think originally, um, you know, Kelly uh, Gallup was was probably the one of the guys that at least uh, kind of connected me to you. But I mean, your name is out there quite a bit on the fly tying end. So I want to dig into all that and everything you have going with all the streamers and everything. Before we get there, can you just uh, tell me how you first got into fly fishing? Yeah, uh, it's kind of a story, actually. So hopefully you don't mind, but this is going to yeah, be a little bit it. of a long one. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's not your typical story, I don't think. I didn't, I didn't fish growing up, really, until 
I was like maybe 15 years old, which I think is a little bit late. <laughs> and we, yeah, well, we certainly, for some. Yeah, and, you know, we fished a little bit. I grew up on Lake Michigan, so we'd, like, troll for salmon or something. But, you know, it's not like, to me, to me, fishing is like casting and jigging. You know, you're you're making the presentation and setting the hook and doing the majority of the work there. And we did a, a family kind of business trip to Canada. And, you know, it's like every what every mid kid from the Midwest does. They go up into northern Ontario and fish for Canadian shield walleye, right? And that's what we did, and it kind of fell in love with that. And, and the first two years, man, I was like the only person in our group, there must have been six or eight of us, who did not catch a pike. It would drive me crazy. All I wanted to do was catch a pike. And my dad, he, he fly fished. It's not, I wouldn't say it's something he's passionate about, but he, he's a hobbyist, and he, he fly fishes, and him and his buddy – were just telling, really they were bragging, but they were telling stories about these pike rolling in lily pads, trying to eat their, you know, boogle bug kind of frog imitations in these lily pads while we're playing euchre at like midnight in Canada. And, you know, my eyes are lighting up like, what is this? What is fly fishing? What are you talking about? Like, right. you know, I, I didn't even occur to me. I didn't even know my dad brought his fly rod with this, you know, it's like hanging on the wall. I'm like, how's this thing work? So we go back and he introduces me to fly fishing. You know, I get a nine foot five weight and get to the local fly shop and get a five X tapered leader and start doing a hopper dropper rig and catching rock bass and stuff. But it's like, my goal is to catch pike. And of course, you know, we go back, you know, the next year and it's like, make it happen up there with a, a nine weight and a floating line, a big bill sheer lipped frog pattern and chasing pike. And so from the very get go, you know, it's never been about trout and dry flies. <laughs> yeah, it <started laughs> it's always out big. been a streamer mindset and chasing chasing predators. And what's crazy, I don't know why my dad did this, but he totally hit the nail in the coffin. But after maybe a year of fly fishing, he gives me Kelly Gallup's book, Streamers, uh, Modern Streamers for Trophy Trout, and that's the first piece of fly fishing literature that I ever read. Oh, like cool. that is, you set me up for a big time nosedive into streamer fishing, right? Like that's my initiation to this sport is, you know, full sinking lines, super short leaders, tossing big articulated flies. Hmm. And I have, I've, I've ran with it ever since. That's awesome. No, it's a cool story. And, but yeah, so that story is, uh, you know, talking about Kelly Gallup. He's obviously, I had him on in a, ba- a past episode and uh, it's definitely one of my favorite episodes. I mean, he dug in. He went deep on everything, you know, his background and how he got into it. So, I mean, you, you had the streamer or this book, one of his, um, you know, probably one of his most popular books. How do you get to the point where you go from that to connecting with him and I think working with them and all in that whole thing? Yeah, that's a crazy story also. Um, <laughs> you know, it's when I got into it and then started chasing pike, fly fishing was to me, it was just a tool in the arsenal, right? It was like, I still gear fished. I had bait casters and chucked spoons and jerk baits and everything else and jigged. I, especially living in Traverse City and having that lake trout fishery east and west bay, I'd jig lake trout and walleye and do everything else. And man, it wasn't until six years later, I, I might have been 21, that I was like, I want to get kind of better at this. And so I just dug into it deeper and deeper and deeper. And Kelly's influence had always been there, you know, as like this godfather of the sport kind of mentality and so i'm like college i'm 21 you know it's, it's probably my third year of college fourth year of college 
and I have an internship lined up. I, I have looking for a degree in wildlife ecology and I had summer plans already and I had a pretty good interview under my belt and things were looking good. And Kelly posts, you know, Hey, looking for help at the slide in, you know, not a guide position, somebody to, you know, work the shop, mow the lawn, do whatever. And I, my eyes just lit up. Like I was like, if that happened, that'd be the coolest thing on the planet. Like, <laughs> and so I sent him a resume and this is how the real world works for everybody who's wondering, but I just name dropped. Okay. So Kelly Gallup's from my hometown. Uh, Kelly Gallup goes to high, he went to high school with my aunt and uncle. Like his best friend was my best friend's dad growing up. Like, hmm. you know, <laughs> so yep. I just littled, uh, riddled my resume with everybody's name that he'd recognize for character references. And, you know, he calls me and of course I'm like, just afraid to talk like, Holy <laughs> crap. Hopefully, you know, I hope I don't say something stupid. And, um, I just totally told him on the phone. I was like, look, Kelly, I know literally nothing. I mean, you know, I've, I've read your book. Uh, I, I know your fly patterns, but I know nothing about dry flies. I know nothing about nymphs. I know nothing about, you know, I'm not like some fly fisherman applying for yep. a, a job at a fly shop. Like, I know nothing. He's like, yeah, I don't care. He's like, as long as you're nice to people, that's the only thing that matters, you know? Huh. Because Kelly's shop, I don't know if you've ever walked in there, man, but no. – it is the most he's just friendly and yeah. i know he he puts off like he's you know he's a badass kind of yep, vibe he does that's all <laughs> but man you walk into that shop and there's three people there to greet you and ask you how's it going and where are you fishing and you know are you guys up here on vacation and, and where are you headed and you know it's it's not that fly shop where you walk into and nobody makes eye contact and you kind of right. get the cold shoulder until you show your checkbook which mm-hmm. unfortunately is is prevalent in the industry in a few places and He's just the complete opposite vibe. It's all inclusive. Everybody welcome. Unless you're there to use his restroom without buying anything. Then you're on his bad list. (laughs) Oh, there you go. That's a good one. All right. So I name dropped like crazy. You know, everybody told him that I was a a semi-decent kid and that was apparently good enough. And I think the biggest thing is I could could get a trailer out there. I needed a place to live. And my dad works in the RV industry. Oh, no kidding. getting a trailer was kind of no problem and... Met it out there and had a, a you know a tin box to live in for four months. So <laughs> that's so cool. What what was the uh, what was the RV you rode out there in? Uh, well, I had a, an airstream, a twenty five foot airstream. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. Are airstreams pretty much the? Uh, I mean, is that kind of? It's a kind of a unique trailer, but is it kind of the top of the line? Is it, is that one of the best? It's pretty high end. It's pretty high end. Yeah. You know, most of the most of the guides I would say are probably in fifth wheels. You know, that have box yeah. outs and extensions and stuff because they, I mean, they're living there. That's yeah. pretty intense. I got pretty sick of having a twenty five foot hallway to pace back and forth down after a few months. That's some tight quarters, but oh yeah, twenty five foot, right, right, yeah. That, that's yeah, no, that's a whole other topic. But being industry. fifty feet, you know, from the Madison River for four wow. months straight is it's worth the the, the hassle big time that's so cool yeah and i just found it the uh, the kelly gallup episode was number 52 and um yeah he, he did uh, we talked all about his you know that whole thing and you know how he comes off and stuff but that was the take i got with him when i interviewed it both off air and on is just that he was just super cool man just super laid back and he was like hey you know you want another episode anytime man just give me a call i'll you know i'll come back on the show and 
you know, I've interviewed a bunch of guests, but you know, you, you know how you, you just interview somebody and right away you're like, yeah, you kind of just have that feeling where it's just kind of a good deal. So no, that's awesome. You've pretty much had one of the biggest mentors in the, you know, in fly fishing. And so what, I mean, what did Kelly teach you? What do you think is the biggest thing you learned from him? <laughs> that's, <laughs> other, that's... Than, other than maybe some good, how to name your flies. Yeah. <laughs> uh, luckily I don't think I, I went that direction. I, I steered away from that a little bit. Yeah. Um, but I don't know, man. That's hard to, to pin on. You know, it wasn't yeah. like Kelly, you know, I walk in and Kelly sits me down and he starts teaching me stuff, but Kelly does his thing and you do your thing and you just watch. And, you know, you see the way he handles. What My favorite thing about working out there is I'd hear him help people and what he would describe and his experiences. And I'd be able to, obviously someone else would come in and I'd try to regurgitate and understand because I, I didn't know anything. So I was, you know, very uh, impressionable. And so I was taking, you know, Kelly's influence and how he'd word things and, and try to help people. And then what was cool is I got to go out and fish every single night. And you'd hear Kelly's stories about what was going on in the river and what to expect and where it was happening and, and what rig to use and why to use it. And then I'd get to put that into practice every single night. And it was like a super crash course. And then I'd come back and the next day he'd be talking to somebody else and telling a little bit of a different story and what's changing. And every single thing that he would say, I would get to apply. And... The biggest, you know, I guess I don't know, but the biggest thing about Kelly's book and really everything he says is that it's true. Like, you know, Kelly's not someone who's just putting out a bunch of ideas and he doesn't know what's what. He's like, he's got 40 years of experience doing this and he's going to tell you, look, man, you're walking where the big fish are. <laughs> like, yeah. they're in that soft water, they're at your feet, you need to take this fly, you need to smack it down, you need to work it fast, okay? Like, and you put that into practice for four months and you realize, oh, he's not pulling your leg. You know, it's, yep. you start moving fish left and right. You start moving 20 inch browns in the Madison that people haven't ever caught in their life because they're a foot off the bank. You can hmm. watch my YouTube videos from four years ago, five years ago. I'm throwing a six inch black fly three inches from the bank, straight upstream wow. and whacking that thing like twice the speed of the current and fish yeah. are just jumping out of the water trying to eat it. No kidding. It's absolutely insane. What's the name of a, so if we wanted to find that video, what do you remember what it was called or just, is there some way to search for it? Uh, maybe like stripping junk or dirty water streamer fishing or, uh, okay, cool. I'll find a link. I'll find that link and put it in the show notes. I'm, I'm interested to look at that too, because yeah, three inches off the bank. When I think of three inches, I think of, uh, some pretty shallow water too. I mean, are these, fish... so it was prime runoff and what, so when I oh, say yeah. prime, I mean like you went from the darkest you've ever seen it to three inches of visibility maybe down to six and then when it when it hits that drop it just the stream bite turned on and it was on for like two weeks straight and wow. so that bank water is like a, a foot and a half deep or two feet deep with kind of a slight undercut so it was like prime holding structure right and the thing about the madisons it's way fast and so those fish can't just hold out in the middle of the river like it's not safe like it's, you know, yeah. it's not, it's just not efficient either. And so they all get pushed to that soft water. And there's the thing I love about the Madison, and this is also something that I'll talk about, especially if we talk about my warm water fisheries later on, but Kelly's book, it's very trout oriented. And the, and the thing you have to understand about his, a lot of his rationale, but behind the way he hunts water, behind the way he changes flies, um, is, you know, the upper Madison's got 5,000 fish per mile or more. Mm -hmm. And there's literally a fish behind every rock. So if you don't get feedback, that's telling that that is feedback. You know, not moving right. a fish is saying, hey, you're doing something wrong. 
And that's why he changes flies every five minutes or changes colors every five minutes or changes the presentation after he's run through his whole color cycle. And up here, the thing that I've always struggled with is that my fish are nowhere near that density and they're highly migratory and highly seasonal. And it's like, man, I could go out and, you know, you talk about going musky fishing, that's a low density predator. Uh, I might have five fish per mile or 50 fish per mile. It's like if I work a mile stretch and I don't move a fish, that doesn't mean nothing about my fly, my color, nothing. That just means there wasn't a fish. You know, and you, you have to play that game of, man, do I need to switch up? Do I need to get deeper? Am I, am I targeting the wrong structure? Or is this just right? And I, I have to find, you know, I have to hit my 10,000 casts. I yeah. got to keep my head down and just keep banging the bank and banging the bank and banging the bank. How do you know that? So if you're, if we are talking about pike, and are we talking uh, mostly a, a mix of, of kind of rivers? Lake? I mean, what, what's, what's the habitat? I mean, what do you fish most typically? So I'm a big sucker for wade fishing. I love to, I, that's my kind of favorite experience. So I fish a lot of, I, well, I fish the St. Louis River in Duluth, and I fish the Cloquet, which is a tributary. And most of the Cloquet is wadeable, nearly all of it. Not all of it, but nearly. Um, and so that's, you know, Average probably 300 CFS. It'll run up to a thousand. It'll run as low as about 170, and it's you know 200 feet wide, cobble strewn all over. It's basically the Upper Madison, but it's full of smallmouth. <laughs> mm, <all right. laughs> For the most part, it's a, it's a smaller watershed, but it's it's pretty similar. And then the St. Louis, man, it's a big watershed. You know, I've I've seen it as high as 15,000. It, mm-hmm. It's typically maybe 4,000 or 3,500, um, but the lower nine miles are all back flood estuary from lake superior so the whole bottom nine miles is like half river half lake it's got a very defined channel bunch of feeding shelves and sand and big back weed bays that are flooded that pike and stuff used for spawning and there's musky in it and so i I fish you know out of a boat i fish still water i fish estuary half and half and I i like to wade fish if i can that's that's what i do for most of the summer yeah that's sweet that's sweet. So if you're out there wade fishing, uh, can you take us to that? You know, maybe you're before we get in, cause I do want to get into the, the fly design and some of the stuff you, you, cause I think that's probably what you, you might be most well known for is everything you done there, but let's just go on this path just for a sec on the pike. So you're, you're wade fishing, take us to that, you know, on the river and, and how you get into fish. <laughs> well, the first year <laughs> I lucked into it. I literally, so, you know, it's, I didn't grow up in Minnesota. I didn't grow up in Duluth. So it's not only my coming from different fishery background, but, I've, you know, I've never fished for river pike in my life. I've never fished for river smallmouth in my life. And I come here with a Kelly Gallup mentality of just chucking streamers and banging the banks and, and jerk stripping flies and all this. And I literally just open up Google Maps. I find a public access on the cloquet. I park my truck. I walk down. I smack a, I was fishing John McClure's Kill Whitey. Smack that fly in a pool, strip, strip, boom, smallmouth, and just started walking up. And I literally fish no differently for brown trout than I do for smallmouth bass. Zero difference whatsoever. Seven weight, 250, full sinking line, three foot leader, big articulated flies. Done. Mm-hmm. Like, checkmate. <laughs> yep. And obviously, you know, that's, I don't know why, but smallmouth bass tend to get the booglebug clouser approach. And Man, they're just meat eaters. They will tackle anything from, you know, a three-inch classic hairwing to a eight-inch, ten-inch musky fly. Like they are super opportunistic predators. Does it vary by size of fish on what flies you're going to take? And how big are some of these smallmouth bass getting? 
you'd be surprised. I think average is probably 14 inches. You know, if you're fishing riffles, you always get smaller fish down to, you know, 12s and 10s. The biggest I've had on the St. Louis has been about a 21 and a quarter, which yeah. is a, a true, a you know, fish. Northwoods giant. Wow. Um, and that thing was just, it looked prehistoric. That was an old fish, man. <laughs> no kidding. So you're using but, big flies for these smallmouth. I like to. I like that five to six inch range is really my favorite. And it has a lot to do with, you know, everything, every watershed has to do with its forage base. And, and kind of, that's my opinion, obviously. Um, but it's like, we got a boatload of juvenile suckers. We got a boatload of chubs. We have, you know, Western, uh, Western dace and golden shiners and fatheads. It's like if you look at the the kind of the the sub adult range for you know suckers and chubs, you're looking at five to six inches easily. Adult chubs can get seven, eight inches easily. You know, you're looking at your your uh, shiners and your dace are easily four and a half, five inches. So I like to find a searching fly that's going to match that kind of upper end of those species. You know, you have a high density of this forage. Most of them can reach five inches. I'm going to throw a five inch fly and start using it as a search bait. And it's, it's, you know, it's one of the things that I learned from the upper Madison. I took my dad out wade fishing and we saw a snake that had, was eating a sculpin. I don't, don't ask me how he got it. I don't know. I don't know if it was a water snake or what, but he was eating a sculpin on the bank. And I had never in my life seen a sculpin that big. That thing was six and a half inches. I mean, its head was probably an inch and a half diameter, two inches in diameter. And, you know, I'm like, I think a sex dungeon is a big fly at this time in my life. And I'm like, Man, this matches a medium sculpin at best, which, of course, you see now Kelly has his triple dungeon and his triple boogeyman, right? He's got these truly big flies. And the first thing I did when I got back from Montana is I designed the triple sculpt daddy. And I took that thing back there. We went back two years ago, and I moved more 20-inch brown trout than I ever did the entire time I lived out there. No kidding. And it was just because I'm throwing a six and a half inch black fly with a one and a half inch circular diameter head on it. It's like, this is the forage. You know, trout guys, they, they tend to hold up a four-inch zonker and say, this is a big fly. And it's like, it's, it's relative, okay? Time out. Because what are you imitating? If there's six and a half-inch sculpin, that four-inch fly is not cutting it. Right. I'm telling you right now, that is a small fly. You don't, you don't have, you know, like a, a hex hatch going on, and you're like, whoa, 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 that hex fly is way too big. These are trout, okay? We need a size, you know, a size whatever, size 16, okay? Right. It's like, no, right. you match the hatch, buddy. If, yeah. if you got big mayflies, you use a big mayfly. You got big, you know, nocturnal stones coming off, you use a big nocturnal stone, like a size eight stonefly. Well, if you got six and a half inch sculpin, you better be fishing a six and a half inch sculpin. Obviously, there's smaller size categories going on. You got a, those, you know, adults and subadults and immatures that have nurseries and they all move throughout the system. I'm not just saying, you know, always use the biggest fly possible, but it's like that was that's totally an appropriate size fly for the forage that's in that watershed. Gotcha. And what was it? You mentioned the search bait. What, what, now what is that? Can you describe what you do there? Yeah. It's so it's like, that's what I'm talking about. Like if I've never fished a water before, uh, like, you know, a section of river that I've never fished and I'm just kind of, I'm going to fish my way and let the fish tell me if they're there or not. Does that make sense? So it's not like I'm, I'm not trying to dial it in. I'm just looking for feedback. I'm just going to yeah. put my head down, bang the bank, and see what happens. And you know you have, that's because you know you have the right line. I know I have something that's ballparking it. Yeah. It's, it's about the right size. They're usually white or white belly. It's going to match the majority of that forage, at least from you know f- smacking a fly and having it above a fish's head. They're going to look up and see something white. I like to fish. This is a totally different topic, and I don't mean to 
Yeah. I always okay. chase rabbit holes, man, but yep. I like opaque flies. Most uh-huh. freshwater foragers are going to be opaque, meaning that they're going to block 100% of the sunlight. And so even if you have a white fly and you smack it up and it's up on the surface, uh, it's still going to block sunlight and have that nice, clean, black silhouette, which mm-hmm. is natural. If you had a, a sucker up on the surface, it's going to look black from underneath. And when a fish gets close and turns on it and has the sunlight on it, then you're going to see the true tones. So if you always try tie a fly true to kind of forage, true to tone, whether it's gray over white for, you know, shad, but you make it opaque because shad are opaque, then it's, it's going to be the best of both worlds in terms of the silhouette that it casts, the way he's going to see it from below, you know, and then come up and turn on it. And it's actually true to color. You know, it's a gray over white fly. Nice. Nice. Okay. And so I guess we're talking about, you know, smallmouth bass here. Uh, I mean, and, and I fish for small, I mean, we have them, you know, out here and definitely I've never used the, the giant stuff. I guess maybe that, like you're saying, the, the, the fish they're chasing maybe aren't quite as big, but, but again, I mean, those bass, you know, they're chasing the big fish, even though they're not, I mean, 12, 14 inches are taking seven inch flies, right? That's you're, oh, yeah. you're getting them. Yeah. Yep. So it just shows you that, I mean, it's again, it's that crazy thing where the fish seems like it's almost, almost couldn't eat the thing, <laughs> but, but they still go for it. You see that all the time. You know, you see those funny pictures where some little fish has a gigantic fish. Yeah. It's just, so it totally makes sense. But again, I think you get stuck on that thing. Like, well, this is kind of the fly that's, you know, people know about and you've taken it to another level. I mean, what, I guess Kelly Gallup, obviously we've talked about him enough probably, but has there been anybody else that's helped you, you know, kind of get to where you are because it seems like you're really your name's out there you're you know you're fly tying i mean how did that all happen with with your flies that just start from tying some crazy stuff or how did you become known to where you're at now at a pretty young age it's a mystery to me man i don't know because now how old are you I'm, i'm 27 yeah, exactly. So you're you're still a young buck, and you know, but you're you're pretty you're probably more well known than a lot of people out there that are trying to find their their space and their and their name well, out there. If it helps, I don't think I deserve it. Oh yeah. <laughs> so, well, how do you think it happened? It's truly a blessing, man. Yeah. Um, you know, and I've I've certainly made some mistakes on the internet. You know, you're a young, ambitious kid. You're gonna piss some people off, but. I just, I, I use social media the way I think it's supposed to be used. You know, I try to tie something that's actually new and, and fresh, but I always try to give credit to the people who it, it came from. And that, you, know, you run into the issue of some, some truly seasoned guys, you know, you don't give who they think should get credit and they get mad at you or whatever it is. But, yeah, gotcha. you know, I've, I've never tried to present something that, wasn't my idea is my idea and if it's my idea i try to present it at least neutrally just because you know even if i come to uh, a new idea for myself and i've worked through it all by myself and there's been no outside influence the truth is somebody else could have had that idea 20 years ago and i just don't yeah. know about it you know and you get that post like well somebody did this and that and you know they're just trying to put you down it's like look man i didn't know i just yeah i came up with this i, I thought it was cool and i just wanted to share it and that's that's what, you know, most of my YouTube videos are, are me trying to share. Most of them are ideas. Most of them are platforms. You know, I, I hate, I shouldn't say I hate, that's a strong word, but like recipes, I put no value in a recipe. To me, that doesn't, mm-hmm. it doesn't teach anybody anything. The, the emphasis of the video should be technique and layout and material manipulation and, and thread control and like all the, the bases. Because yeah. if you take those away, then it impacts all of your tying for every fish that you do. It has nothing to do with if you tie my recipe or not. I don't care if you tie a jerk junior or not, but I'm going to equip you to tie not only the fly, but any other fly that's similar to it. 
Right? The goal is for, for me to teach you how to design your own flies, not tie your own flies. I don't care if you tie your own fly or not, but to design it takes it a whole step further. And that's, I don't know, I hope, I think it's just an attitude of I'm, I'm here to teach. I'm not here to, to, you know, take credit for anything or come up with the world's greatest anything. I'm just trying to help people because, man, I, I sucked at fly tying. I'm not kidding <laughs> for seven, eight years, nine years. And it was like, I, f- I don't know what clicked. It was Kelly Gallup streamers on steroids, that DVD, because mm-hmm. I had never had a video resource. I'm super visual. I have to see it. I like books that don't do it for me. They do it for me now. What about YouTube? YouTube was out there, wasn't it, when you were I didn't know. Up? So it was like a year later I found Brian Weiss's channel. Yeah. That, that was a game changer because I started – Well, you, so what I do is I have a video on uh, YouTube called The Infinite Fly Principle. And I'm not trying to cheapen fly tying in any way in that video. And I don't want people to take it away as a way to design a fly because it's not. It's a way to formulate an infinite number of recipes. And what you have to understand about fly design is fly design begins once you have a recipe. And that's why I don't put a lot of stock in recipes because a recipe doesn't do anything for for balance and weight distribution and, and material density, which is impossible to convey on YouTube how dense you're actually using a material and that has massive inf- implications for buoyancy and water resistance. Like that's half the fly is how sparse and, and how you manipulate materials and how you comb out the underfur and what sections you use and, and what proportions. Like that's everything. If I just tell someone you use a craft fur tail and a craft fur wing and a, a brush to build the body, I, yeah. I literally taught you nothing. Yeah, it's like the pencil. Yeah, and I, I heard you. Well, you did give one, uh, well, a lot of good tips. One of them I was looking at, you were doing the, I can't remember which video, but you were stacking some deer hair without a stacker, which is a cool tip. You know, I mean, I think I think that's always kind of a cool thing. My dad kind of, you know, always kind of taught me too, is that, you know, try to learn to do stuff without a bunch of tools. And, uh, nice. you know, that was one. So that's a, that, you know, that's a great tip. So I think that you know, your, your channel just provides a bunch of value and, you know, kind of a way to do, you know, things. But I mean, as far as the density stuff, you know, talking about as thick as a pencil, how would you describe to somebody who maybe was going for smallmouth bass, has never used anything big, has always just used little woolly buggers, little bugs and stuff, you know, to tie a good fly, what would you tell them to, to help them with their fly tying if they wanted to tie some big stuff? So I, my, my favorite influence besides Kelly Gallup, has been Bob Popovics. Mm-hmm. And it's been a really weird journey because uh, I found Popovics's book, Fly Design, fairly late in my fly tying, like maybe three years ago. And, at, of course, at the time, I don't know why, but you always think you're, you know, you're hot stuff and you, you got a, a chip on your shoulder. You're like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a badass. I can tie a good fly. And then you read that book and I was just like, I know nothing. <laughs> like the yeah. book it was to me it was the best read i've ever had and pop flies is no different his, his first book his earlier work they're just phenomenal and the bucktail deceiver and i think the bulkhead these i call them platform flies and this is kind of what i was trying to hint at earlier but it's like if you just tie a fly with bucktail and flash boo and you tie it nice and sparse you put good kind of spacing between each one so they all manipulate and move and you get the right taper and you understand you know, your long stack going into a medium stack and a short stack and building a collar and having this proper shape so that you have good hydraulic and how all the tapered tips are going to literally get pulled by that hydraulic disturbance and actually swim the fly. And then you dress it. 
And this is like the whole, this is what I, when I'm talking about like a freestyled fly, it's not that I make it up on the cuff. I might tie a bucktail deceiver exactly the way Popovix does. But I'm going to put saddle tails and a little saddle wing and I'm going to countershade it with peacock and I'm going to use a flash blend at the body and put little red gills in it and put eyes on it. Like that's his fly. But I just dress that thing to the nine mm-hmm. to match a specific forage and silhouette and get a little bit more life out of the tail and what whatnot. And gotcha. so for starting to tie big flies, I, I think kind of saltwater patterns and, and techniques, that's where I would start. I think they're the epitome of a, of, of a truly perfect bait fish. And that's, you know, freshwater guys are all about bait fish. And what fascinates me is they know the forage so well. And I think it's something that freshwater guys have lost, especially my generation is understanding the forage. We don't think about it anymore. We think about flies, like a sex dungeon. But what does yeah. a sex dungeon imitate? Right? It's designed to imitate a sculpt, and like Kelly designed it with a reason. But if you don't understand that we have dace and darters and shiners and, and all the different sizes and, and how big they are and what watersheds they're in, I mean, that's like important stuff. Mm-hmm. Saltwater guys don't talk about a, for, a fly for like bluefish. They talk about mullet and bunker and you know, uh, silver sides. Like they talk about forage, understanding that all of the predators relate to that forage when they're in there seasonally. And so we, I don't know why freshwater guys do it, but we have trout flies and warm water yep. flies and cold water flies and steelhead flies. And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> hmm. We have forage. And then we have predators that use those rivers and relate to forage. And I can catch a pike and a smallmouth on these same fly. There's no difference because there's the same forage present in the same system. And those fish are relating to similar structures. Like, you know, you don't have to extrapolate this and make this complicated, people. You know, it's you just have to learn your watershed, and it's a hard thing to do. And like I yeah. use, I have books from fish biology that I took in college that I use literally to understand size and color combos. It's called Fish of the Great Lakes Region. It's one of my favorite books. The whole back is a massive color palette of probably eighty species, and it has a size chart for each species. And it's like you know, look up DNR shock surveys and find out what forages in your lake. You know, is it a, a bass bluegill lake? You know, you should be fishing bluegill imitations. <laughs> like, yep. You know, yep. and, and understand that, you know, you don't go out to a bass bluegill lake and throw a sex dungeon. I'm not saying you're not going to catch fish. Fish aren't that smart. They're going to be curious, but that's not what they're conditioned to. That's not what yeah. they're looking for. Well, I think what it comes down to, and that is an awesome point about the forage and the comparison would be to the trout fishermen who are fishing bugs, you know, the aquatic, you know, the entomology piece, right? There's that whole thing of, you know, you could study it, study the bugs, know about all their life histories and that stuff. But I think a lot of people do tend to just maybe grab the flies because it's easier and maybe they don't want to go that deep. Um, but for those that I think have got into knowing a little bit about aquatic invertebrates that, yeah, it just, it provides for a better experience. Not only are you going to catch more fish, but you're learning about the aquatic system. So it sounds like it's kind of a similar deal with, with the predator prey thing. Well, you know, absolutely. And you know, it's like a trout can tell the difference between a caddis and a mayfly. Well, a pike can tell the difference between, you know, a, a a shiner and a bluegill. And if they're after one and not the other, if there's a school of shiners moved up on the edge of a weed bed that they're ambushing, it pays to know the difference and it pays to know the forage because there is, you know, as aggressive and maybe pike's not the best example because they are aggressive but as selective as as trout are fish are looking for those silhouettes fish are looking for that distinct i like i use flash blends a lot uh to kind of use like a forage head and if you ever i don't know if you've ever caught like a crappie or a perch mm-hmm. or uh, what's another good example even walleye suckers 
but they're all they have a very gold sheen when they oh, yeah. when you're fighting yeah. them and they're you know they're just deep you can't quite see them and they're they're turning and thrashing and shaking their head they're it's always gold and yellows and golds and yellows yeah. i love like i don't just tie a white bait fish but i'll tie white with gold and silver and in holographic yellow and that flash blend to me is what brings it to life because fish are shiny man when they turn in the water you see that flash like your flies should have some sort of light yeah. reflectant character to it and blending flash is what gives it that kind of depth and to me you know I, I don't just fish like a silver and white fly yeah that'll catch fish but it's not necessarily super accurate and it's yeah it costs you nothing to buy two other colors of flash one that'll last you a lifetime to just hand blend it yep yep no that's that's good and, and what do you think i mean I guess getting to that when you're tying those and talking about how to know how much to put on, you know, if you're tying this fly, you know, you talked about the importance of densities and things like that. You know, again, I guess reading the books and kind of digging into some of that stuff is good. But do you usually go with less is is more on the the flashy stuff, adding it to it? Or do you at, at times put in a pile of that stuff? So I would say that I use a lot, but I never use a lot at once. I always try to layer it. Oh, okay. So, you know, the, the cumulative effect at the end of the flies, you know, it's a fairly flashy fly, especially for pike. Um, but it's, it's always layered and it's always changed tones and I always use different blends and you can use less aggressive flash, you know, like Magnum flash is a really wide cut flash boo that's going to throw a lot of light versus something like wing and flash, uh, which is shredded mylar, super thin blends in you can you can't even tell that it's in there but the fly still reflects light so you can use a very like a way less dominant flash and still have a flashy fly mm-hmm. does that make sense and it, oh, yeah. and something even popovix you know he texted me like a month ago because uh, i was tying up a, a bunch of his flies that had flash tails you know he's like you know sometimes i fish that that shuts fish down they don't dig that heavy flash tail i really like to use and he, i think he called it angelina fiber which is it's super similar to wing and flash just shredded shredded mylar something that's going to blend and fade and transition through all of the bucktail work so that you don't actually know it's there but yet your fly is still reflecting light today's episode is sponsored by jackson hole fly company They've been designing and manufacturing fly fishing equipment since 1978 from their home base in Wyoming. They launched JH Fly Co. in 2020 and started selling directly uh, to consumers all over the country. You can go over and check them out. they got a huge selection of reels, lines, tools, accessories, flies, tons of flies, um, all sorts of good stuff. We've been running a top fly challenge. This has been a really fun uh, exercise that I've been doing and uh, I'm going to be tying up more flies here and, uh, and we're going to be sharing that word and giving away some some flies and some fly boxes. Uh, you can check them out right now if you go over to uh, jhflyco.com slash swing and you'll get 25% off by going to that link. Head over right now, get a free shipping on orders over $50 and get 25% off your first order and you support this podcast by clicking through that link to Jackson. Well, I think there's a bunch of stuff we can keep digging into. I, I did want to, you know, because I don't want to miss this during the show, and this is kind of the tips, you know, tips and tricks stuff. But do you, you know, we talked about one there with, you know, stacking the, the deer hair. Could you go through maybe a few tips that are just general flight tying tips that you cover a lot in your YouTube channels and your, you know, your videos and stuff as far as that might help somebody tie a better fly? And specifically, I guess we're talking about streamers here. Interesting. Yeah. Um so I think first and foremost, and this is, I know we keep bringing Kelly up, but 
Mm-hmm. You should be able to truly latch down and catch every material with probably three turns of thread. Which is crazy to think because some of the material you tie with, say bucktail and other things, are yeah, the, well, and, and not so only bucktails, yeah. You're going to get into some obviously some materials that don't follow that rule, but bucktail is a great example because I would argue that you should, and if you can't, you're, you're using it too dense. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's an argument that I would make, and and I'm not going to put three turns on it and then just move off of the bucktail. I'm going to tie in all those butts, and I'm going to make it as durable as possible. But if you have the right thread. You spin your. Here's a good tip: is to spin your thread, especially when tying in things like bucktail, because bucktails it's it's a tough material, and if you are tying with a flat thread, well, then all of your pressure is distributed in a very wide array, and it's easy to break one of those strands, and then another, and then another, and then you break your thread, and you can't actually pull. When you cord it up, you're asking that bucktail to now break all of it at one time. Does it matter if you cord it up clockwise or counterclockwise? Does that matter? Um, so it's going to change the way the thread falls when you bring it down. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Um, but I always do it clockwise because I'm right-handed. So I tie clockwise. So it's, mine's always kind of pre-spun that way as it is. Yep. So I I don't have to spin it as long because it's already going that direction just from my natural tying. Yep. And so that's a great tip just because you're asking that bucktail to now break the whole cord instead of fraying individual fibers. And you'll actually be able to seat that down with a lot more pressure. And another tip, you know, when you're when you spin your thread, if you're tying an articulated fly, I'll spin I'll spin my thread when I put down my thread base on the front hook. That way, why my wire has something to dig into. My wire has a really rough surface on that hook. It's not just a smooth hook with smooth thread, but it's going to help that wire to dig in and catch, so you can't ever get your wire to pull out. Let's see here. <laughs> yeah, no, I know this. That's a, not an easy question. You got so much stuff. I mean, maybe we could take it to, it might be interesting to talk about a, a specific, I know you talked about not going specific patterns, but what do you think is your, I mean, if you just had to say your most popular pattern or maybe the YouTube video that's got the most views, do you, do you know what that is? <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> yes. It's, I say unfortunate because it's not a, it's not a pattern that I really feel like I, I developed even properly. It's, it's my, I call it a keel the jerk. And really, it's it's Andreas Anderson's craft for a bait fish. And Andreas is one of the best tires on the planet, but he's just a phenomenal tire, amazing color blends, and he has a, a pattern called the craft for a bait fish, and he uses eyes and UV resin to shape the head. And the fly is literally just a you know, stack of craft for in the tail, move up, craft for head, done. Mm-hmm. And I took that inspiration. I was like, man, I, I just need a weedless fly for throwing into cover, changed up the tail, put that head on there and i obviously in the video disclose you know this is just a variation of andreas's fly but that video is skyrocketed yeah, <laughs> i don't know why and you don't know why <laughs> i don't know why i would much you know like so moving away from the recipe but like my i tried i filmed a series called tie like a pro and honestly the first video just thread basics and i'm talking about it, it showcases tying in material with three turns of thread I literally tie in a stem of marabou and break the marabou before it pulls out with three turns of thread. I tie in a clump of bucktail that I nearly rip my hook out of my vise trying to get it to break before <laughs> it comes out of my thread. Yep. You know, I talk about tying with completely perfect, you know, circular pressure. Something that beginners do is they tie very oval, very up and down, up and down, but they don't have circular bobbin path. And so they don't have even pressure. And every time they, they move towards that, that skinny side of the oval, 
well, it's slack, and it's just your thread backs off, and your material's not actually lashed down, right? And it's like one of the things I talk about, you catch that material, and then you do four wraps forward and four wraps back, and that locks your thread in place. Or you move forward and you whip fin- or a half hitch, right? It's yeah. like I see a lot of people, man, they'll put three turns over something, and then they just take their thread forward and let go of the bobbin, and you just see right. the whole system back off. And it's like, right. whoa, 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 whoa. And this is it, – it pains me because when I teach a class – these are the things that I'm so heavily focused on, but everybody's in, engrossed with the recipe. Everyone's trying to make the fly look like you're flying. It's like, just stop, take a step yeah. back because I could, you know, we'll take your durability of your fly from three fish to 50 fish. If, if you can just forget about the recipe and worry about the technique for just, you know, five minutes. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm looking at the, the keel jerk. So, I mean, it's, yeah, it's tight, it's tight on a different hook or what's the hook that's used there? It's an A-Rex Texas hook. Okay, and why, and what's the background on that hook for somebody who's not aware of why to use that versus, and the style, the hook's kind of, I mean, everything looks kind of backwards on it compared to a typical fly you might think of. Yeah, so it's it's a weedless hook. It's it's designed, you know, for, for bass fishing. It's designed for worm fishing, for Texas rigs and stuff like that. And guys uh, took it out of that realm and, you know, dressed flies on it for throwing in tomate groves and weed beds and, and you know, heavy, heavy cover. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the issue with the fly is that it's, it's really weedless, <laughs> oh, <like laughs> which too, yeah. you don't get a lot of hookups because the hook point is, is truly in line with the hook eye. Yeah. Um, and if I were to recommend people tying that fly, you either bend your hook, you offset it laterally left or right, right. with some players, yep. uh, or you can actually bend the frame of the hook to raise the hook point off so that it's ups- offset above your hook. That way yep. you get better hookups. That's cool. And so it's stuff like that, but yeah, you know, it's, yeah. I could have taken that pattern of, of much better direction, but I was just so, and I don't know, it's one of those things. I almost did it just to make people happy because I posted it on Instagram the day before and everybody freaking loved it. And I was like, well, I'll show people how to tie it. If you want to know how to tie it, like it's not a big deal, yeah. you know, but it wasn't like something that I slaved over getting perfectly. And that's what kind of bothers me about how well it's done because I have so many better videos that I have spent months and months fishing those flies and tweaking those flies and i present something that i think is truly exceptional you know and it has 3500 views or whatever and i'm like ah. yeah <laughs> like, no, I, hear, I see it yeah no it's that's a, that's nothing compared to that video i don't know why totally yeah i see that it looks well and i think it just it's a little different that's the thing it looks different than the weedless fly it's got a little different probably a lot of people maybe haven't seen that concept but i am looking at some of your other flies i kind of at least on my end searching it up and you got the uh you know, I guess this this is under your stuff, super jerk, just other stuff. The uh, the mega jerk. I mean, the jerk is your common. What is the what is the jerk? Uh, is there is, who who's behind the jerk? Uh, what what is that whole thing about? Is it there's a whole series of them? Yeah. So uh, first and foremost, I learned it from Nicholas Bauer. Uh, he's a, a Swedish fly tire. He actually owns Fly Dressing, which is based in Stockholm. He's a, a fly tying material distributor in northern. Uh, I guess southern Sweden, um, but he's a total pike bum man. And he, his company has worked with a YouTube channel called Canal Gratis uh, dot se, but you spell the dot, so it's like Canal Gratis dot se, you know, oh, D O T S E, yeah, yeah, uh, dot Sweden basically. Um, and that channel's super high production quality, and he has a bunch of pike videos that are phenomenal. Some of the best film you'll ever see for chasing pike done in in the in the Baltic area. Yeah. Um, 
but he designed a tube fly called the sheep fleece and he's and the video's in swedish and he's talking about the head how it's high and tight it's narrow and he pinches it with his eyes and how when you strip it the eyes will kind of catch the current and turn the fly sideways broadside like a jerk bait and he has an entire fly uh, fishing competition dedicated to fly fishing versus gear fishing. And it's called fly versus jerk. And so he references that the fly works like a jerk bait. You know, it, it slashes and changes direction. And so that's where the initial inspiration came from. It was that uh, head design. And I had only ever seen it in, you know, a 12-inch pike fly. And I was like, man, what if someone tied a 3-inch, you know, variation to use for smallmouth and whatever else? And so... The first fly was the Jerk Junior, and then I articulated it, the Super Jerk, and then I scaled that up and reverted back to a single hook, which is called the Imposter, and then I articulated that, which is scaled up, and it's called the Mega Jerk. So, oh, gotcha. okay. the three, the four flies are functionally identical uh, in terms of the way they balance the head design. They're proportionally scaled up appropriately. Literally, the Mega Jerk, and, and the biggest thing is they grow by volume. This is something that I wanted to touch on earlier, but we were talking about smallmouth eating truly big flies, right? Mm-hmm. Like a seven-inch fly. But a seven-inch fly, it's not that big. It's just long. And if you look at a lot of forage, like let's say suckers, man, a 10-inch sucker is not that big, but a 15-inch sucker is huge. Yep. Like at some point, fish stop growing in length and they grow in volume. And and one of the things, like if you talk about, let's say like a, a 24-inch trout, what is that? Maybe five pounds, four and a half pounds, right? Like that's a, a truly trophy fish, a river fish. Mm-hmm. But if you talk about a, a 10 inch trout, man, that thing doesn't even weigh half a pound. It's just long. Like they have no volume. That that 20, that 24 inch fish is 10, I don't know how, how big, he's 10 times bigger than that fish. It's not, it's not that he's twice the length of that fish. He's literally 10 times the volume or more. He's huge compared to that fish. Three, you know, dimensionally, it's not just length. Yeah. And so when you talk about, you know, uh, a 14-inch smallmouth eating a 7-inch fly, man, 14-inch smallmouth is not that small. <laughs> like, yeah. they're, they're deep, tall, wide-bodied fish. Right. And a little 7-inch forage, man, that's like slurping down a French fry. Nothing. It's nothing. Yeah, gotcha. Okay, good. Well, I'll, I'll, again, I'll leave notes to the stuff we're talking about here so people can take a look. And, yeah, they're all cool-looking patterns and um, – you know, pretty unique. That is a cool idea. I like the concept of the, you know, it's not really the, the wounded fly necessarily, but it's just putting that on its side. And as you, and, and I guess if we're talking about smallmouth bass too, how do you, can you talk about how you're stripping those flies or in presentation and how that, is that different versus pike versus smallmouth? Uh, it can be, you know, especially when I'm weight fishing, I always, when I'm weight fishing, I totally divert to Kayla Gallup's jerk strip part of its habit but it's also because i'm just fishing so close to my fly i, I might fish 20 feet of line 25 feet of line max oh yeah well, what is the jerk strip what, what is that jerk strip so fundamentally it's it's the same technique that you would use in gear fishing it's i would call it a slack line presentation and you you wrap like you literally just whip your rod tip down animates the the lure and then you reel up the slack and so fundamentally you you manipulate the fly with your rod you twitch the rod you jerk the rod and then you strip up the slack. Mm-hmm. That's the jerk strip. And the, the whole point is that you should always strip up the amount of slack that you move with the rod tip. It's always supposed to reset itself. Um, and the one thing that the jerk strip does is it puts you in a, well, one, it uses the rod tip, which is quite a bit more finesse, it, but it has a better acceleration and stop. 
So you get a lot more nuance in the fly because of the way it accelerates and then stops immediately that you can't necessarily do if you just strip it in. You can't get that same acceleration. So the fly behaves quite a bit more aggressively, which is what gives it more erratic behavior and it helps fish truly react to it. You know, it's, it's a far greater visual stimulus. Yeah, but yeah. It, it almost exclusively puts you in a position to, to set the hook with the rod. And this is something that I highly would advise against to people who are looking to chase pike, looking to chase musky, big game species, maybe stillwater fishing. Um, and so when I'm smallmouth bass fishing, I love the jerk strip because I'm so close that, you know, setting the hook with the rod at 20 feet is not a big deal. I have plenty of leverage and power to drive that hook home. But if I'm in a lake, if I'm in stillwater, if I'm in a big back bay with weeds and I'm making a 60-foot cast – to a, a pike fishing situation is what I'm trying to describe here. Um, yeah. But I'll use exclusively a strip retrieve. Okay. Um, and the whole goal is you keep that rod tip low, you point it straight at that fly, and you just hand manipulate the line so that you're 100% in position to use a strip set. You have to set the hook with your line hand. At right. that distance, you almost have to. And you see, what's crazy is you see a lot of guides industry professional people have been doing this for years i mean i'm talking like 30 years they'll go fishing they'll get a bug to eat uh, not a bug a fish to eat a bug like yeah. 35 feet away and they'll just lift and that fish is on for a second and a half and then he's gone that's like the the definition of when you sort of strip set because he mm -hmm. had that fly man he had that hook in his mouth you just didn't drive it home and it's a really hard thing muscle memory wise to to compensate for and fish striking to me it's it's the greatest aspect of the sport, seeing that, that fish take your fly and feeling that tug. It's like hmm. when all of the all the adrenaline is released. <laughs> and so it's yeah. it's so easy to go to a default sweep. And I call it a rod sweep because I, I do it from gear fishing, not from dry fly fishing. That's why I don't call it a trout set, but I call it a rod sweep because that's how you set the hook when you're gear fishing, right? Yeah. And you just, there's too much stretch in the line. There's, it's too long of a, a rod. You don't have the same power to drive a hook home. And are you doing with smallmouth bass, are you doing the same sort of strip set or what, what, what's your set look like there? Yeah. So because I'm using the, the jerk strip retrieve, cause I'm closer, I'm 20 feet away. I'm 25 feet away. I'll just sweep because you're that much closer. You don't have any stretch. It's a much tighter presentation. And so that, you know, nine foot rod, 20 feet away you're moving a third you know you're you're closing that right. distance pretty dramatically so you actually have a lot of leverage to set the hook that's why i like that retrieve in that situation but still water fishing lake fishing pike fishing it's always a straight strip and it's always a strip set mm -hmm. okay all right cool so yeah i mean we're not going to be able to get into all the the different flies and you know there's probably a lot on the fly design we'll leave out but um you know anything else you know just talking about the flies you know that we missed here i mean i'm looking at some of your other patterns you got a lot a lot of different stuff a lot of them have you know different materials i mean are there any if you had to pick a, a few materials that you you know you you're going to tie a smallmouth bass fly is there one material that you would definitely go with I would exclusively tie with bucktail for the rest of my life. No kidding. And be a happy camper. <laughs> yeah. And and you tie with a lot of stuff that's not necessarily I can't tell on some of the flies, but I mean you tie some that are no there's no bucktail, there's a lot of synthetics, or is it usually a little bit of bucktail in there? So I I have all of the above. I'll do yeah. flies that are solely synthetic. Yeah. I'll do flies that are solely bucktail. I'll do flies that are hybrids. You know, I have flies that are nearly 100% naturals combined with marabou that are triple articulated like a sculpt daddy and deer hair collars. So this is something that I, I wanted to talk about. 
And so I'm just going to go for it. Yeah. But when it comes to fly tying, fly fishing, all of it, you know, I'm, I'm young and I certainly don't deny that, but something that I'm not is well-rounded. And I am a hundred percent okay with that because if you look at your average tire, your, your person who does this for fun, who maybe ties flies on the weekend once a week, let's say, that's, that's 52 mm-hmm. times a year, right? And if you split that up, we'll say you tie an hour at a time. That's 52 hours a year that you tie. And you're going to tie a third of the time dry flies, a third of the time uh, nymphs, and a third of the time streamers, right? Man, that's, I don't even know, it's like 17 times, a third of 52, I think yeah, it's about 17. 17 hours a year. Man, I put that in in two and a half days. Mm-hmm. I got two because I only tie streamers and I only fish streamers. And I, you know, I have an entire, someone's year of experience I can lock down in two and a half days. And I've done that for five years now, six days a week, five days a week. And, and on top of that, it's, I'm not trying to figure this out from scratch, but I've been blessed by guys like Kelly Gallup and Bob Popovics and Rich Stolas who have these resources of just knowledge upon knowledge. It's like I'm building off of 35 years of Kelly Gallup's experience and 40 years of Bob Popovic's experience on top of having time behind the vice that equates to most people's lifetime that I've already put in. And because it's I'm so narrow-focused, it's so much easier to have such a wide breadth of knowledge, Just, but it's about one topic. Like, man, you can't even, I can't even describe to you how to tie a dry fly. I have no idea. I don't even know what no the kidding. components are. I have, I've probably tied five dry flies in my, my entire life. That's crazy. <laughs> but the goal is not to be well-rounded. You know, if, yeah. if, if in 50 years from now I, I get to live that long and I die, you know, my goal is to be the best streamer tire. Not the best fly tire, not the best fly fisherman. The best streamer tire, the best streamer fisherman. That's the goal. Yeah. And, and I, you know, the more narrow the focus, the, the, the faster you can progress, the less I have less things to worry about, less things I'm trying to learn at one time, less distractions, less things that are holding my attention. It's 100% all in streamers. Yep. So, you know, I tie with synthetics. I tie, I, man, I got videos on, Inst- or not videos, but uh, pictures on Instagram for three years ago, stacking bass bugs and tying divers. I type 100% synthetic, 100% bucktail. Deer hair work, you name it. It's yeah, but it's all, it's all it's all streamer. It's all streamer. <laughs> that's cool. No, it's cool. And it, it, a couple of things come to mind. I mean, I actually had an episode a little while back um, with uh, Meat Market Flies, one of the guys who's involved in that. And it, it, it it's funny because the more I do this, the more I realize that there's all sorts of little niches in there, and they're kind of in a similar niche to you. They're they're tying, you know, they're mostly streamers and stuff like that. It's a little obviously different story. Everybody's got their own story, but with yours, I mean, how do you avoid? I mean, one of the things I know I went through this in the past is just getting burnout. I used to tie production sort of stuff, and I mean, after a while, you know, you, you can tend to get burnout. Do you, do you have you seen that at all? And do you see that as a, an issue down the line? I, I get burnt out every other week. That's yeah. a very real thing. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, Bramer's Custom Flies was, I used, I took orders for about three years um, and tied 50 hours a week for about three years. And then when we had our son, who's now 14 months old, I basically stopped taking orders because I couldn't juggle it all. And having worked at home and worked in the basement, you know, my wife's a structural engineer. And it basically made sense for me to stay home. Um, and I'm finally kind of getting back into it. 
he's he started some part-time daycare so i can start you know tying quite a bit more production here and there but the thing for me is this if i'm not creating something it's a real drag like it's it's hard to motivate to tie six flies yeah. or a dozen flies at the same literally i have to do everything in my power to try to entertain myself while i do it because I, it's like smack your head into a wall but right. the moment i have an idea i could sit downstairs for 20 hours straight and not realize that time's even passing because it's i'm so engaged in what i'm doing and so like so the the i posted a video yesterday called the dropper jig method like that i've I could literally sit downstairs for the next three days playing with that technique, different weights, different lengths of extensions, different platforms, filming all of them, putting them all in my swim tank, seeing how they function using different material to do it, whether it's stainless steel or titanium or monofilament, working on different – like I could literally just engross myself in that idea for a week. And then when the week's over, that kind of passion leaves, and I put that – you know, I give it a big check mark as – you know, I pursued this until it was a dead end, and then I'm going to move on and try something different. And if you watch, if you go through my entire history, whether it's YouTube or Instagram, you'll see, like, gunners going all in on jerk flies. Like, that whole Jerk Junior, Super Jerk, Imposter, Mega Jerk series took one season, but I only tied jerk flies for the entire season. And I just poured myself into that idea. And then when that left, you know, the year, you know, I had some random ideas here and there, maybe like a crayfish or a leech or something like that, or a swing fly. But then the next year, I had the exact opposite, and I had the counterpart. I had the fuzz junior, and I had the hot fuzz, and I had the—I didn't release the fuzz senior, but it's basically a bulkhead variation. It's the bulkhead allspark that I just showed like a week or two ago. That's the fuzz senior, and so it's like I have. Then I go into the complete other direction and find out all the counterparts. And this year. With that jig method, that dropper jig method, I can take both of those silhouettes and both of those designs and put all of them on a hookup platform for fishing heavy cover and weight them in a way that guarantees they ride hookup and finesse the weight based on the, the drop length uh, so that they're castable. So, you know, each, each year there's a different progression as to what the focus is. Yeah, and it's, you mix it up. I don't think people, you don't, it's hard to connect the dots because they'll be months apart. You know, I'll tie a fly and just look at it and be like, cool, and then put it down and tie another fly three months later that's nearly identical with a few tweaks that make it better. And I I don't even realize that they're related. This whole dropper jig, I totally forgot that I had done that literally probably six or eight months ago and brought it on fly shows and had a bulkhead with a dropper jig on it. And I, I saw Blaine Chocolate and uh, we were in Iowa City at a show and he just walked up and he's like, oh, that's wicked cool, man. You know, it's like, oh, thanks. Like, I didn't even think about it. It's like, oh, I just did that to salvage that fly and get it to, to turn over and ride right. And, you know, and then two weeks ago, I'm like, that was a good idea. Like, that I needed, you know, it didn't occur to me then, but it occurs to me now. <laughs> right, right. Like, that was an epiphany moment that I didn't even have. It's just. And that's just because you're always, part of that is that, like you said, you're always trying, you got time, you're testing new stuff. And that's probably a good tip for anybody out there that, the best thing to do is just to keep tying and, and testing and not get stuck on, on patterns, but just try new things. Is that what you'd recommend for somebody to maybe uh, get an epiphany like you had? So what, like, what I like to do is, so instead of like tying a, a recipe, you find a technique in the recipe, like Bob Popovic's hollow tie. 
and then you take that as a platform and you, how many ways can I incorporate this into how many flies with different tails and different heads? And this one's got pet fins and this one jigs and this one's supposed to suspend. And you take a, a technique and you see how many ways can I apply it? Like when I learned how to stack deer hair and I learned it from, from Pat Cohen's DVDs, man, I owned all three of his DVDs, his hair stacker and packer, everything. I put deer hair on everything I tied for like three months straight. Everything had a diver head or a slider head or a big popper head or like a deer hair underbody collar to use as an intruder base. Like literally every opportunity I had to squeeze deer hair in there somewhere, I did it because I was engrossed in that technique. And then when you test all those flies, you get to see things that hold true and, you know, how the the density and, and how much it soaks up water and, and how you shaped it and, and how the, the different shapes react in the water and how they react on sinking lines and floating lines and, and different leader lengths. Like, you take, you know, you take a technique and you apply it across dozens of variations and then you swim them all and you get to see what holds true and what necessarily doesn't. And when you do that for a number of years, flies literally can just come together and, you know, I, I go downstairs and freestyle a, a bulkhead hollow fly deceiver and whatever and it's like that's probably 95 percent gonna fish you know i might tweak the tail length might be a little long the flesh might be a little dense the collar maybe didn't come out quite perfect but it's like that's dang near dialed in and it's it's just from having done that for so long and applied those techniques across so many different platforms and seeing what they all do you know i'm certainly gonna make i, I have a lot of garbage flies i'm not trying to say that there's a lot yeah. of stuff you guys don't see <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, but uh it. Yeah, that's the Instagram thing. Yeah, you only see the the best, and it's kind of deceiving because you don't <laughs> you don't see all the junk you went through to get the, to where your your beautiful fly. That might make a good YouTube video one day, but I literally have. Oh, yeah. I mean, I have car. I have. I probably have five thousand streamers downstairs that are just tucked away because I don't throw them away, but they're just in cardboard boxes in bins literally hundreds of them just piled on top of each other just bad ideas head didn't come out right didn't look clean enough wrong color combo <laughs> you know just today's episode is sponsored by fairflies who was founded on the idea of finding ethical solutions to fly time materials and products they've done just that by creating jobs for marginalized people around the world and the u.s they're experts and innovators artisans of exceptional products their 5D brushes make fly tying faster and more enjoyable. We recently had an episode where we talked about the Fairflies and the brushes and, uh, and their fly fur. A couple of these products have been game changers for durability and, uh, and just kind of allowing the synthetics to take the lead some, in some places where uh, some of the naturals don't quite do it. They are also the owners of Wasatch Custom Angling Tools, and they're carrying on the tradition of hand-making custom heirloom quality fly tie-in tools. They got over 50 tools there, and a, uh, they are a true do-it-yourself company. Their goal is that you tie better flies faster. You can check out what Jeff and the crew have going over at Fairflies right now. That's wetflyswing.com slash fairflies, F-A-I-R-F-L-I-E-S. Head over there right now, and you support this podcast by clicking through that link to check out fairflies so we're going to get into the the rapid fire round here pretty quick to ra uh, wrap this up but um we were talking just briefly off air i want to touch on this because it's kind of interesting i've had a couple of you know captains on the show and and i've asked them that question because out here you know i'm on the west coast you don't hear the word captain thrown around a lot with fishing guides and things like that but you know out there on instagram and other places you see captain you know whoever 
And so, you know, we were talking off air how you aren't doing any guiding uh, or you haven't done any in your area because you pretty much need a captain's a license or affiliation to get out there and, and fish. And is that on the – what is your home water? Did Have you already mentioned them today? Yeah, it's the St. Louis, the St. Louis River. So that river you need an actual – to guide out there, you need the, this captain's accreditation? Yeah, and it's it's through the Coast Guard. Oh, through the Coast Guard. Yeah, so it's a full, right. Oh, yeah. And, you know, you got to take, I think it's an eight-day class that costs basically a grand or more. And it's just a big hoop to jump through eight days, yeah. you know, a couple hours right. a day, big class. You got to get all of your boat inspected, take drug tests and do the whole nine yards. And then apply from Minnesota, which they don't have too many regulations. It's just like a little fee you pay. It's not too much gotcha. to get your fee, but yeah. the whole it's the whole river, man, for all 212 miles of it. It's all yeah. designated water. I got gotcha. you. So it is something that, yeah, it takes a definitely a little bit of work, but it is doable. Is that, you know, when you look long-term with yourself, obviously you've got a good thing going with the fly tying, but, you know, what do you see in the next, have you looked out five, 10 years or more on, on where you'd like to be? And, you know, are you going to be sticking with this fly fishing, you know, the sport and as far as a, a job, that sort of thing? I hope to. You know, the the biggest thing for me is, and I've I've just I've had a lot of people who have come alongside and helped me, but you know the biggest blessing for me is being able to teach. I th- I think it's the coolest thing, and getting to go to shows and do tying demos and have tying classes and speaking engagements. Those to me are the coolest thing. Like yeah. I could I could travel and teach people how to tie flies for the rest of my life and be a happy camper. Whether mm-hmm. people are going to pay me to do that or not, it's a different story. But um, you know, every tying season in the fall, I look I look forward to that big time. Whether or not I can buckle down and tie commercially here, when free time allows and pay some bills, that's a different story. But I think I'm gonna I'm gonna stick around if the industry will have me and and teach streamer tying to wherever anybody will have me, basically. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So, you know, and I guess. You know, I had a couple, some questions here. I just want to jump in, um, you know, and this one, this first one's kind of easy, I guess, you know, I occasionally ask this, you know, are you a better uh, fly tire or fly fisherman? It sounds like, how would you answer that, that question? I definitely tire, but I'd say my fishing skills are slowly, but surely coming on par, believe it or not. And it's, man, I'll tell you what, the coolest thing, I, I know this is a crash course, I'm sorry, oh, but, yeah. um, the coolest thing about like going to Brazil, I went to Brazil last fall with nomadic waters. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that video. That was good. It was so crazy. But the coolest thing is when you get to, this is what people don't do, but you get to fish for six days straight for like 14 hours a day, 12 hours a day. Most people fish, you know, once a week, seven days apart. But when you, when you have that kind of environment, when you're engrossed in something and you're paying attention to every detail and trying to, to muscle out that strip set and hold that right hand at bay and, and keeping that rod, like that, that type of crash course environment. And, and I, and my head's just geared towards that because I'm, I'm trying, I'm, I'm intentionally trying to become better. You know, I'm not just there passively trying to catch a fish, but I'm trying to become a better angler and, those those moments, man, they'll they'll take you light years, literally years of experience. You can pack into six days of that type of environment. So my fishing's getting there. Like I think my my video two weeks ago, the streamer fundamentals of streamer fishing. Mm-hmm. That video, I hope, points a lot of people in the right direction. Cool, and uh, you know, just staying on the the smallmouth bass, uh, you know, uh, theme for a little bit. You know, is there any other tips or anything you throw out there or flies or anything that to help somebody maybe 
get into some more. I mean, because small bass are kind of, they're known as kind of the easier fish to catch, you know, I guess when you're comparing them to, to trout fishing and things like that. But do you find that, that it's, it's pretty simple to, to catch some fish or catch bigger fish with smallmouth? And I guess that's, you could look at, compare it to pike or whatever you want to compare it to. Yeah. It's, if you know where they are, I don't think they're that hard. Yeah. The problem for me is finding them because my system, man, if I went to a spot on the cloquet with first of September, I could find two dozen fish. But if I went there the 15th of September, I could fish 10 miles and not find a fish. And is that just water temperature related or? Yeah. Yeah. The moment it, I don't know what the temperature is, but man, they push out of there. They move miles. Mm-hmm. You're talking 30, 40 miles of migration. They just leave entire stretches completely deserted. And the first year I was here, I was like, what happened, man? <laughs> like literally yep. I was there a week ago, crushed a bunch of fish and then they're gone. And you know, the the thing I think about smallmouth is it's, it's really easy to catch a lot of little fish. That's what I'd say is easy. But you know, I, and I don't get to fish that much being a stay at home dad right now, but I probably luck into maybe two or three 20 inches a year. That's, that's what you got to hang your hat on going out Fishing trophy water for trophy fish, that's way hard. I mean, it's its its comparable to musky fishing. I mean, the number of fish you got to go through to find a true 20-incher. And you got to, I mean, that's when it comes down to having the right technique, the right cast, the right presentation, having a, a big reactionary fly, strip setting, knowing. How, I mean, if you get a 20-inch bass in current and you're weight fishing, that thing will take a 10 weight and bend it tip to cork. Hmm. That's a serious fish. You're talking about a, a five, six and a half pound fish. Right. Like it's not a joke. And they're twice yeah. as deep as a trout. They're freaking, that's a sail getting pushed around in that current. And yeah, that's, that's what it, it truly comes down to, to me. Yeah. Did you have a, um, I had a note here on a, um, I'm not sure if this was one of your videos, but on how to release, it might've been a pike related video, but is there any tips on, I guess you could just look generally, you know, about releasing fish. Is that something that, uh, is a big struggle for, you know, whether it's smallmouth or, or pike fishing when you're out there, is that, or is that something that's pretty straightforward? You know, um, I don't think it's, it's necessarily a difficult thing, but I just think a lot of people do it wrong <laughs> or, yeah. or maybe they have, it, it depends on your intentions. You know, I go fishing, I, I catch and release 99.9% of the time. If, you're, if your goal is to go out and experience fish and experience the fishery and let them go healthy, man, you better be pinching your barbs. Yep. Because, and, and the second thing I'd add is fish with a net. And it's, it's hard, maybe musky fishing or pike fishing if you're not in a boat. Uh, and tailing fish and, and grabbing them by the gill plate under the chin is pretty safe. But when I've fished for brown trout out west i didn't have a net for like the first month and i would drop fish in the grass all the time and i was always worried about getting stuck by my articulated hook my back hook i always have a you know articulated flies i'm I'm worried about getting stuck about that one and and you're overhandling fish and you're wiping their slime off and when i started fishing with a net i could net that fish and hold the net in the water that fish is in the water that fish is getting water over its gills when your barbs are pinched I'd say nine times out of 10 fish shake the hook off in the net and you just pull the fly out. You didn't have to handle that fish at all. And if you didn't take a picture, you just let that fish swim out of the net. You literally caused no stress besides the actual fight to the fish. And that, you know, if you're prioritizing catch and release, 
I think that that should actually be a priority. If you're practicing catch and release to do a gripping grin and you got that fish out of the water for five minutes and you're manhandling it with pliers trying to get a barbed hook out that's in a bone, you're you're killing that fish for a picture. And you have to yeah. juggle if that's worth it or not. And I'd definitely say no. <laughs> no, no. Definitely not. And I'm not, you know, I'm not perfect. If I catch a 10-inch bass, yeah, I'll just throw them back in the water. It's not a big deal. You know, it's a little tiny small fish. I fought it for three seconds, you know what I mean? It's not like yeah. I overworked that fish and truly need to, to get it recovered. But you you need to treat those big fish with respect. Anytime yeah. you actually fight that fish, man, you better you better cup that sucker and get it in the net and put it on a, a nice pillowy bed with some soft bubbles and romantic candles because, you know, you're out there for a reason and it's not to kill fish for no reason. No, no. That's uh, yeah. Those are uh, good points for sure. Well, let, let's j- jump in real quick just to the uh, the the two twenty two, which is kind of the top two tips, resources, and um, and flies. And I guess if we just stick on the uh, the bass, smallmouth bass. If you had to pick uh, two flies for smallmouth, what what would you go with? <laughs> That's brutal. Uh, <laughs> super jerk and a hot fuzz, both of them. Yep, super jerk and hot fuzz. And what about any? Uh, do you have a couple of tips? I mean, I know you've talked about some here, but that could be either fly fishing for smallmouth or fly design. Anything you want to throw out there? Uh, don't don't play by anybody else's rules except your own. There's a lot of people in this industry that are going to be offended that you're doing something different, that you're doing something new, that you're doing something because you want to. That's not traditional, man. And honestly screw them <laughs> that's yeah that's the polite way to say it screw them yeah like you do you if it's ethical to the fish you know if you're treating that fish with respect you do you don't let anybody else tell you otherwise aside from that i don't know have you seen some blowback i mean w- w- what does that look like because uh, you know i've heard that occasionally throughout uh you know here and there that uh yeah you know there's people or whatever that you get blowback what, what does that look like on your is that just kind of a social media thing or you know for somebody that's never seen it what what is that honestly it's, it's, it just comes across as ignorance yeah. right. <laughs> and i'd say it's you know let's say it's people trolling but that's like a modern thing where someone's trying to get a rise out of you for in, in my opinion they're trying to you know it's like they're trying to irritate you on purpose but then you just have people that are truly like they take what you're doing as offensive. Like you, you are challenging how they identify as a person by throwing streamers. You know, it's oh, like when right. I was out West, I wanted to fish Harriman's ranch. It's maybe 45 minutes from Kelly's shop. I heard really cool things about it. It's an excellent fishery right across from trout hunter fly shop. I was like, cool. Well, I'll go there and I'll, I'll try to throw some streamers and see what happens. And the guide came up to me, one of my trailer partners. He's like, yeah, you can't throw streamers there. I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> He's like, if you throw streamers there, someone's going to slit your car tires. No like, way. You are, you're going to have to call somebody, and we're going to have to pick you up. <sighs> like, you know, there's people who are offended at what you're doing, and it impacts it. Like, if I want to throw streamers, it doesn't impact you at all. Like, this is me, this is me doing me. If I want to yeah. tie a fly a certain way, I'm, I'm sorry that this isn't traditional, but just because it doesn't fall within your definition of fly fishing doesn't mean I shouldn't be able to pursue it. Like, why is this offending you? You get these weird people that truly take offense that you don't subscribe to their idea of what it should be, and they just they're they're hateful. You know, it's not a, a constructive comment. It's not no. you know, if I don't like something, well, I just don't comment on it or I don't like it. You just scroll past it. You're like, meh, I didn't think that was the best idea. It's not a big deal. Yeah. It doesn't impact me in any way. Like, why would I go out to, you know, intentionally hurt somebody uh, just because they're pursuing whatever they want to pursue to make them happy? 
That's weird. Yeah. It's it's pretty ridiculous. And I don't yeah. and most of it's keyboard warriors who I was gonna say that that's what it seems like the easy way to do it is yeah, when you're behind a keyboard and you're anonymous. But yeah. Yeah, on the river sort of thing, that would be something to have a you know, have that happen and be able to confront the person because yeah, that is just a weird uh, sort of mentality. Uh, and it br- kind of brings back, you know, I had Gary Borger on in a past episode and, and he talked about when he for his first basically getting into the nymph fishing and kind of leading that back in the, whatever that was, the sixties or seventies that, uh, yeah, people looked at him like he was a freak. <laughs> they're like, what are you doing? You know, this is dry fly. This is fly fishing. There's no, you know, this is, you know, so the same sort. So again, so it's been 50 years or whatever now. And I guess you still have the same sort of some of those people out there. It's not going to change. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, and I, I only throw streamers, you know, and I fish, man, I fish an eight weight rod probably 90% of the time or bigger. You know, I fish a foot and a half liter sometimes on my sinking lines. You know, you just, I throw a 14 inch beast fly. You know, you say these things. And I'll go to shows and people come up to me and look at my flies and they almost like scuff. They're like, what is this for? Like, <laughs> what's going to eat this? Yeah. I'm like, okay, time out. Let me, oh, you're talking about the beast fly. Okay. Let's go like bluefish, striped bass, pike, muskie, peacock bass, arapaima, yeah. barracuda. You just start all the offshore species, Kobe, you just start listing off fish. I'm like, right. man, just because this doesn't fit within your little you know, ra- creek and dry fly fishing and, yeah. and fishing a four weight, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, but this is, the sport has truly evolved. Yeah. And I, I'm fascinated. Like Kelly's book is my first thing that I read. So I've known about sinking lines and short leaders and big flies ever since I started. And I go to shows, man, I'll have a weightless fly. And someone's like, how are you supposed to sink that? <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. Okay, now I understand there's people who maybe don't know, right? So you have to check your response and see if there was some attitude there because it's like, well, let me, you know, help you. Like, they're, they're sinking lines. You know, they got these different sink rates. You can actually, you know, educate somebody who, who doesn't know. But there's also people there who, are again, are just truly ignorant. Yeah. And it's like, man, that's not fly fishing. What is that thing? Is that- right. <laughs> what is your fly line of, uh, of choice for the sinking? What can you, is that, do you have a type of line or just a company that you use a lot? I mean, I'd, I'd tell you it's, it's Rio's outbound short, um, uh-huh. sink three, sink three is my favorite all around lie. Yep. Um, but the truth is, man, I'm just a broke kid. I, I ain't got no money. So, yeah. I mean, I fish lines that are 10 years old. I got fish, I fish lines that are cracked all over in the course, peeling off them. And yeah. I got just a junk array. And this past spring, I kind of bought a whole bunch of new, the outbound short and the taper's lovely, man. It chucks big flies, turns them over. Perfect. It's got all the different sink varieties from floating, hover, intermediate, sink three, sink six. So that's cool. It, it's got you covered. That's cool. No, I appreciate your, uh, you know, kind of your honesty there and stuff. I mean, I think that's one of the things in the fly fishing space that I've been trying to hit on a little bit is, is really, you know, because some of those species you talked about, you know, are, are species that people have never fished before because some of them cost a lot of money to get out to and uh, and they don't have the money, you know. So I'm I'm trying to dig a little bit into these places where maybe you can, uh, you know, get out to some of these, you know, like a DIY sort of thing or yeah. kind of going into that a little bit. Because, yeah, I mean, five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars is a is a crap load of money for a, a lot of people. So, no, I get that, man. And like this is this is my view on fly fishing. Anything that you can make a casting presentation to from a gear world, bait caster, spin, doesn't matter. If you can cast to it, you can fly fish for it. Period. Mm-hmm. Like if if I don't care what it is, man. We got there's so much evolution and different streamers. Like 
And game game fish eat bait fish. I'm sorry, but mm-hmm. streamer fishing is the most applicable discipline in the sport. It applies to the widest range of species. It, it applies to every single predator fish on the planet that eats another fish. You, if you can cast to it, you can streamer fish it. Man, yeah. we got top water all the way to dredge flies and jig flies and wiggle tail flies and hookup flies and weedless flies and I mean it's ridiculous. You talk about Blaine's, you know, game changer. You talk about his T-bone. You talk about Bob Popovic's beat. I can make a 14-inch bunker fly that's true to silhouette. Huh. I can take that thing and chuck that thing 80 feet with a 12-weight. Like, yes, you have to dis- – like, you know, we talked about right. fly tying technique and how pivotal that is. Like, screw the recipe. Stop focusing on the recipe. Yep. Listen to the technique here because it will change the way you tie flies. If you learn how to cast, man, so many people – think that a new line and a new rod is going to fix it like if i buy well that rod felt really good i casted (laughs) it for 10 seconds if i buy that i'll be a better fisherman no take a casting lesson stop buying new rods take a casting lesson learn how to cast a fly rod stop your back cast abruptly accelerate smoothly this is where your double hole is supposed to go at the end, not the start. And you talk about you know, your hands coming together and then separating on your haul for maximum leverage. Like there's very simple things that can take a beginner caster to an advanced caster in a year's time if he practices. And yeah. then he has the rest of his life as an advanced caster to chase fish. People just go through and buy new rods and new gear and read new articles. And yeah. they just stay in this state of mediocrity without – enjoying it because if you can't cast you cannot enjoy fly fishing i'm sorry that's well and that's a good tip you have to be able to cast that is a good tip there on the cat because i mean when you're talking about casting whether it's a 14 inch fly or a, a four inch fly i mean do you have a tip for casting those monster flies you know something you that's helped you or you'd tell somebody uh. <laughs> I mean, are you, you're not a fly, I guess you, you talk about the fly casting instructor. I'm not sure if you're a, a I'm official. not a qualified instructor, yeah. but I'll tell you this, man. Um, so I'll, I'll backtrack a little bit because there's something important about gear that I learned the hard way. When I was, this was the year after I worked for Kelly, man. I had no money, but I had a nine weight and I had an eight weight line and I didn't understand. It was like a, you know, it wasn't a shooting head. It wasn't a nice, big, beefy head. It was underlined for the nine weight. And I was trying to throw an oversized fly in a line that didn't have enough mass to it. Mm-hmm. And it was true. It was the definition of a wet sock. Oh, yeah. And I, I filmed a video called Three Reasons to Downsize for Muskie. And it has nothing to do with, uh, you know, muskies don't like big flies. Absolutely not. They love big flies. They're ridiculous for big flies. It has everything to do with a beginner's ability to cast a big fly. If you want to cast a big fly, you first have to be able to cast a smaller fly. That's just the truth. And it's like, I'd rather, if you want to get into pike fishing, musky fishing, striped bass fishing, man, learn how to cast a five-inch deceiver and learn how to cast it well. And something that I do, because it's far more comfortable and I have a lot more leverage and I can use my full body, but I sidearm cast, especially when I'm in a boat. Don't go overhead. Sidearm it. I have. I was told that I have a, a Belgian sweep. I don't even know. What, you can look it up. I don't know what mm. it is. But it yeah. takes the fly out and away from my rod tip a little bit, and I have a nice little arc in my back cast so that I don't hit my rod tip with my fly. And the biggest thing with fly casting that I would just recommend is is stop. And and don't don't take that the wrong way. But when you first and foremost, your back cast has to be aggressive. People always focus on the forward cast. 
the back cast is the cast. If you don't make a good back cast, you can't make a forward cast. Your fly line is what is weighted. Your fly line is what loads the rod. If it doesn't go behind you and if it's not straight, you're screwed. Focus on the back cast. When you bring that rod up, you have to accelerate smoothly so that your your rod your your rod tip physically travels in that nice linear path. If it's not smooth, it's not linear. And your your fly line does what your rod tip does. And once you have that acceleration down, man, you have to stop. And you have to stop high. People go way too far back. And so I was I was working at the, the St. Croix Rod Factory at Customer Appreciation Day. And I got to listen to Dan Johnson teach broadcasting oh, yeah. all day. And I got to help him out. And I learned nice. so much from how he would articulate to people. Because so many people keep the cast going. They never stop it. And what happens, you throw that fly line into the ground. You have to stop that raw tip with your thumb pointed straight up in the air. You have to yep. aerialize the line. If it goes up and away, then you can go down and forward. You need to be able to shoot that line down at a slight angle, cut it through the wind. You have to stop to transfer the energy. Like there's all these nuanced things. And people just, they make a big giant arc and they just wave that thing around and expect the line to go somewhere. And that's like the true definition. Like when you watch a good cast or fly cast, it should be effortless. It's not simple. It, It takes a lot of coordination and practice, but it's effortless. Does it look effortless when, you know, and, I, and Dan Johnston was on in episode 75 and he kind of was my first real single hand cast, you know, casting kind of podcast. But um, does it look when you're casting a, an eight inch fly, does that look effortless? Because I can imagine, and, and are you, you talked about 80 feet. I mean, are you casting these things 80 feet? Oh, yeah. Yeah. If I'm still water fishing, absolutely. And what does that look like? Does that look like? Does that look effortless? Because it just seems like there's so much weight that it, it would it'd be tough. To, so in like yeah, I would argue you, you. So there's two ways to pair a rod, right? You you pair a rod for the fish you're gonna fight. Let's say a smallmouth. I can catch a smallmouth on a six weight pretty comfortably, maybe a seven. But if I'm gonna throw an eight inch fly, I might fish a nine weight. So the second way to pair a, a rod is to your fly. And if you you have the right line mass. Casting an eight-inch fly should look easy. If you're trying to do it on a seven weight, no, it's not going to look easy. Yeah. But if you're doing it on a nine weight or a ten weight, absolutely, because that yep. that line has so much more authority and so much more momentum, such a higher line speed, and it's it's obviously important that your your rod is outfitted to your your casting stroke and and your your forearm strength and all that stuff. I I like uh, I love a moderate fast action rod. I can't cast a fast action rod that well, and they don't fish big flies that well because they don't absorb any shock. But if you if you have a nice moderate fast action rod with a true shooting head, like that outbound short, so it's, it's a yeah. true, it's a line and a quarter, or a line and a half over. It's going to load super easy. It's going to shoot out super easy. You're going to feel it. That's so important that you feel that cast. Yeah. And truly, it, an eight inch fly should should look fairly effortless with the right rod and line. Yep. Yep. Cool. Cool. All right. Well, I'm going to let you get out of here pretty quick. Just had a couple couple other ones before I let you go. And, and one of them I've been asking here, I think it's pretty interesting because I think you're, I haven't looked at all the ages of my guests, but I'm sure you're one of the younger ones. And I've been asking this question about music. You know, do you have a favorite band or type of music you like to listen to is uh, what comes to mind when I, when I mention that? Uh, metal. I'm a metal kid. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, your your video has. Uh, what's the video when you pop on YouTube? This song comes on that little thirty minute, uh, thirty second clip. That's some pretty pretty good stuff. That's some silence. The assembly right there. Okay. So, um, yeah, I, I grew up when I was in high school. I was totally like a pop punk kid. 
like loved like Rise Against. Like that that was like the definition of one of my bands, man. Rise Against was phenomenal. Breaking Benjamin okay. stuff like Rage Against the Machines, and then yep. that just transitioned in college to some serious heavy metal. And most of it, I try to most of it's pretty clean. Like I, I follow a lot of Christian bands uh-huh. in the in the metal circuit. And oh, cool. So there's there's a full on Christian in the in the Christian band metal circuit. <laughs> yeah, believe it or not, there is. That's crazy. Yeah. But they're they're just clay. Well, is that when you look at the look at just the metal? Is it is it not a is it more of a, a not a clean sort of thing? Yeah, just from the roots, I think. Oh, okay. It's yeah. f- fairly intermixed now, yeah. um, and and even the the bands that I, I like that aren't Christian bands, they're usually still you know clean lyrics, uh, and that's that's just something to me. If I if I don't appreciate the lyrics, it, it doesn't really draw me into the song. There's truly only one or two bands that i can appreciate that maybe don't have vocalists but that's that's an emotional trigger that i really appreciate in the music and if it's something that i can relate to that's positive and encouraging that's you know helpful <laughs> gotcha gotcha uh, at least in a little bit yeah <laughs> and what about uh, do you have a uh, a fantasy trip you know is there a fly fishing trip that kind of just is something that you got i you gotta... want to go to sweden and chase pike oh, with okay. nicholas bauer no, there you that, go, man. It, Bauer, if you listen to this podcast, man, yep. tell you, seriously, that is my dream trip is to chase Pike in Northern Sweden. Nice, nice. Oh, uh, yeah. Hopefully he's listening, and if not, uh, maybe I'll, I'll get him on the show down the line and, <laughs> and connect him. So that's cool. All right. Uh, let's see. Well, I, I guess I think that's about all I have. Obviously, we didn't touch on everything you know you have going. I think this is just kind of a little primer um, to get people into your stuff and take a look at what you have going. But in the next six to twelve months, anything you know? Obviously, you're a kid, and you said what, one year old or how old? Yeah, fourteen months. Yeah, fourteen months. You're one right in the old. thick. You're right in the thick. Yeah, my my kids are a little bit. I, I've got five and seven, so I'm a few years ahead of you. And you're, okay. you got some. You got some good uh, good stuff in front of you. Definitely, definitely changing things, but you're gonna love it. So, um, so yeah, you have that. You're obviously the big stuff there. Other than that, anything with kind of fly fishing in the next six twelve months that we're we can expect from you? I hope so. Uh, and I'll say this because I'm I'm committed to the idea, but I've always wanted to do material kits. Oh, I've okay. always wanted to offer material kits. It's kind of a uh, poor form that I promote so much material and all these different techniques and I don't sell yeah. any of it. Right. Um, but you know, I, I've always been hesitant cause it's quite a bit of a chunk of change to get started. And I, uh-huh. I don't want to compete with fly shops. I really don't want to have that. You know, if, if I could in some way have a baseline kit, but then make it accessible to go to your local fly shop and resupply and do all the stuff, you know, it's the mm-hmm. hardest thing for people is just finding it all in one place. Yeah, it is. And it is. I've undergone this process the past two months of, of redesigned the Jerk Jr., the Fuzz Jr., and the Slow Jig Clouser um, so that they all use the same material base and foundation and technique, and they're just all shaped differently to get different forage profiles. Um, and the goal is to come out with kind of one beefy kit that ties all three of those flies. Uh, you're going to have you know weightless, weighted options. You're going to have jig options. Uh, all the kits are kind of going to be intermixed, and then hopefully halfway through the year, I'll be able to come up with uh, a different color combo to to help that. Oh, cool. And oh, Hairline, awesome. man, the coolest thing, Hairline's got a new app, and you can basically yeah. uh, dish your order out. for. So Hairline is a distributor, so you know you're the, the, cust- the average guy doesn't have access to it. But you have access to the app, everybody listening. Uh, and so you can dish that order out to your f- local fly shop, and they will order it for you. Oh. And so this is one of those things, like if I could get people started 
That's get sweet. people engaged, and then those people could have the you know the rest of it stocked at their local fly shop for you know I ran out of hooks or you know I need new eyes or whatever it is, because you know the whole point is just to grow the industry. I'm not I don't want to start a fly shop by any means, and I don't no. have the space to do it. But if I could you know just get a little bigger kickback than the one thousandth of a penny from a view, you know, <laughs> yeah, a little helpful. That's right. That's right. Yeah, you're at uh, you're at like eleven thousand subscribers, but that's not uh, isn't that crazy though. Full time income that's crazy, yet. Yeah. man. Not even close. It's pennies, but yeah, I know that's the that's the other thing. I you know, I won't get into all of the monetary stuff, but yeah, I mean, you think of the the business model sort of stuff. You know, you got to have. I think you got to have hundreds of thousands or millions, you know, to to make a business out of the that sort of model. But the the model you can make a business out of, I think, is getting a few people and making a really cool product, you know, and maybe this, this thing you're talking about here would be a way to get there a little quicker. I hope man. And you know, like the videos are free, you know, you'll, you'll have, there's going to be totally new instruction for all three patterns. There's going to be, uh, if fall goes well, we'll have to see how the fall fishing goes well, but there's going to be a, an individual fishing video for each pattern on how to use mm-hmm. it in situations, oh, specific cool. different leader builds to accentuate the way the fly is supposed to move and behave and, you know, it should be pretty in-depth and accessible for everybody who wants to start. Like it's, you know, these aren't huge flies; they're four-inch flies. They're, mm-hmm. The hooks are black nickel-plated finish, so you can fish it in the salt. They're perfect wire thickness. You can fish it in fresh. You can fish them for trout. You can fish them for smallmouth. You can add hackle tails and dress it up and make it slightly larger for you know and have a proper six-inch fly for chasing maybe pike. Like it's designed to be extremely accessible. And each one matches a different forage base and silhouette. You know, your bulkhead's super tubular, like mullet sucker, uh, even goby and, and sculpin. That jerk junior's high and tight, very shiner, very herring, you know, very narrow profiled fish. And then your your slow jig clouser's perfectly in between. It's that kind of just natural, it's you know, you're you're splitting both extreme ends of the spectrum, something like a dace or a daughter. They're not that big, they're not that broad, they're not that tall. Right, they're kind of just like a sharpie almost. So you got all three, and you'll have all all the options for sculpting and shaping and colors. So nice. Well, that's uh, yeah, that's uh, that's exciting. I'll definitely keep an eye on that, and I'll put a. Well, we'll get a link, I guess, if they want to find you now. Streamersbygunner.com. They can get your stuff, but down the line, if you get this launched out, they can find that as well because this episode will probably be out there for a while. Just uh, you know, providing some value. So. Um, it should be fall, like October. Fall. I think okay. that's when I hope to have it oh, perfect. set oh, up there you go. and videos releasing and good to go. Awesome. Well, that's, that, yeah, I'll definitely, that's right around the corner then. So, and, uh, well, I guess that's all I have for you. Thanks, uh, Gunner, for uh, definitely providing the, the tips. And, you know, I know there's going to be stuff that I'm going to think about today being like, damn, I wish I would have asked him that, but you know, <laughs> I, I, I can't get to everything. So I'll do my best to maybe add stuff. I do a little show notes on this and I'll, I'll add some stuff, you know, where, where we miss things. But, but yeah, until I connect with you again, thanks for coming on and providing all the resources. Right on, Dave. Thanks for having me. Just hope everyone appreciates some of the rants and, oh, yeah. and can take some some useful from it. We love a, we love a good rant on this one. I'm not going to edit any of it. It's all going to be in there. So we'll, we'll be good to go. But, uh, <laughs> all right, man. I'll catch you later. Right on. Take care. So there it is. Wetflyswing.com slash 367. 367 will give you some links and some beautiful photos of the stuff Gunner has going. A real easy way to connect with him uh, and say hi. Reminder, if you've been loving this show and want to support us, one really easy way to do that is just to click over to some of our sponsors' websites. 
We stand behind all of them and would love, and I know they would love to hear from you. If you get a chance, let them know uh, you connected uh, with them through this podcast. That'd be much appreciated. Quick listener shout out, David Hopkins. Uh, David is going to be heading out on this trip with Jeff Liskey. Uh, we're heading out there in December to Steel Hadawi to dig into, I mean, really refine the spay game, uh, refine my spay game, everybody's spay game. Uh, get some steelhead action, and uh, I'm excited to get on with David. He first heard uh, the Jeff Liske podcast when we first launched that first one a year or two ago, and since then um, has been digging into it. You can head over to webflyswing.com slash destination to get updated when we've got that next trip uh, that we be going. We're going to be focusing on the steelhead trip here, and um, we've got some stuff coming this next year. I think it's going to be involving some warmer weather, um, potentially. If you have an idea where you want to go, if you'd like to go out with this podcast with one of the guests we've had on the show, let me know. would love to hear from you if you get a chance. Uh, you can send me an email as well, dave at wetflyswing.com, and, uh, and you could let me know uh, if you have any feedback for this show. Hope to catch you on an upcoming trip. Um, like I said, would love to hear where you want to go. would love to put something together for you. If you get a chance, uh, connect with me, and I would love to see you on the water or just connect with me online. We're getting out of here right now, and and right now, it's go time. I hope you have a good afternoon, good evening, or good morning, wherever you are on this planet. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.